Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me today as we explore another important topic that helps us see that we are in the time of the end. There are so many things happening in the world that threatens to undermine our salvation that we have to think about how we should live. We cannot just go through life blindly without considering the important issues that we're facing as we near the close of human probation and the judgment of the living. Today I plan to give you a very politically incorrect Bible study. At least it would be politically incorrect to some people in high positions in churches and organizations. But I have to tell you what God says. I cannot just tell you what most people tell you because that isn't what God says. It is a message on a doctrine that is so unwelcome these days because of its powerful implications. Pastors don't speak much about it. Educators don't explain it to their students very much. Many people are afraid of its consequences. But before we begin our rather important Bible study today, I want to invite you to join me in praying for our work in Australia. We're making great progress, but there are many souls in the throes of decision for or against Christ that have been through our health retreat. Our Bible worker has told me that she is overwhelmed with interest in Bible studies, and it seems awfully important to pray for these dear guests that have attended Highwood Health Retreat, that they may surrender their lives to Christ. Secondly, I would also like to invite you to participate in our once-a-year request for your help with our work at Keep the Faith. This year, we're working to match a $70,000 matching gift so that we can upgrade our very messy roads at Highwood Health Retreat. Our roads on campus are shocking. I have not mentioned them to you before because we had other urgent priorities. Now this one has bubbled to the surface and is now on our hot list of priorities. They have potholes almost everywhere, and in some places there are mud slicks that make a huge negative impression on our guests when they try to navigate more than a quarter mile from the front gate to the health retreat. These campus roads were never done right. They don't have enough culverts under them to drain the water properly, and none of them are cambered properly to drain the water off of them. So they're just a mess, and we need to address that. We are ready to start a new campaign on the Internet with ads and special offers that promises to be very rewarding and which will be strongly attractive to people who need healing. God is resurrecting Highwood so that it will be able to do all that he wants to do. And we need your support in order to reach our matching goal. Please do whatever you can to help by sending your gift today. There is still time to do so. We don't make any direct appeals for your help other than at the end of each year. Your gifts and prayers mean so much to us. But at this time, we need you to consider a special gift to help us reach our goal of a second $70,000. But wouldn't it be amazing if we could triple those funds and match it twice for $150,000? Oh, my friend, please consider it. 
You know that Keep the Faith is doing its best to reach lost souls with the truth of God, both through the monthly CD preachers that can go to many places that I cannot go, and also through Highwood Health Retreat that offers healing and salvation to those who come through our program, most of whom are secular people that have no background in Christian living. So please help us reach our goal. It is vital that we give God the best opportunity to reach our guests with His love. We need your gift by the end of this year so that we can get the roads completed before the beginning of the program next year. I would also like to invite you to pray for souls who are receiving our monthly CDs or who get them from friends, who do not realize that we are close to the end. They think they are okay spiritually if they are in their churches and pay their tithe and do what the minister tells them, or rather don't do what the minister tells them not to do. So share your CDs with others. Offer them the pink card that's in your packet so that they can fill it out and become subscribers too. Also, order a bulk quantity of our confused dog cards to give away so you can invite people to join Keep the Faith. Thank you for your support. And one last thing. Here's an extraordinary opportunity from Last Generation magazine. This is a witnessing magazine that my wife Betsy edits and produces. It discusses current events in the light of Bible prophecy for those who don't know the three angels' messages. It's attractive and relevant and comes six times a year. Right now, Last Generation has a special two-for-one subscription offer. That's right, two subscriptions for the price of one. You sign up for a subscription for yourself and for someone else for only $15. Surely you can think of one person to whom you could send this magazine. And when you get your own copy, you can read it and then pass it on to someone else as well. Or if you really like a particular magazine, you can order more copies to share. You can find all the order details in the insert in your packet this month. Some of the issues coming up in 2017 include a special issue on health and wellness, plus an issue called the Protestant Reformation, Is It Over?, This special offer of two subscriptions for the price of one will only be available through January 2017 and will not be repeated. After January, subscription prices will increase. So hurry and mail in your two subscriptions today or call 540-672-5671. That's 540-672-5671. Now let us bow our heads in prayer so that we may ask for the Holy Spirit to speak to us in His own way through the Word. Our Father in Heaven, my message today is a most important message. We need your Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and teach us what the Bible actually says about our times and what Christ is doing for us and in us. I pray that we will have our eyes open that we may understand the Scriptures and respond in righteousness to the things we hear from him. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, I'm exhausted. (laughs) I'm completely exhausted. There's been such a chaotic election campaign in America that I and many of my fellow Americans are out of steam. We can't take it anymore. We can't take any more political rhetoric. We can't handle any more scandals. We can't trust anyone anymore to give us the truth. It is all distorted by lies, rhetoric, and mudslinging. Both candidates were so bad 
that it really shows us how low America has actually gone in its moral worth. But we're just at the beginning of its slide into war and disasters and chaos, according to the Bible. Now that the election is over, there are other crises to pay attention to. It's as if one prophetic crisis follows on the heels of another, and as the world races to the bottom, we are headed for a religious crisis that is sure to overthrow the existing order and replace it with a religious monarchy that is so politically correct that anyone who even whimpers about it in the wrong direction will be cast as an enemy of the state. So we need to deal with a question that may make some of our listeners uneasy, and maybe even revolt. It's certainly politically incorrect to say the things I'm going to say today, especially in the churches. And it's rather unfortunate that we have come to a time when even the truth is considered to be treason. But that's what it is. So I hope you're ready for what's coming on the world. I hope you're ready for what God wants to do with you. And I hope you're ready to face the consequences of God's dynamic in your life. So let's get started. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 77, verses 11 to 13. Let's think about these verses for a moment. Here is what verses 11 and 12 say. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. These verses tell us what we should be doing. We are to remember the works of the Lord Jesus. We are to think about and meditate on all his work and talk of what Christ does. So what does that mean? Yes, it means that we are to talk about the things Christ did, how he delivered ancient Israel from bondage in Egypt, how he did miracles for ancient Israel, and how he confronted their idolatry on Mount Carmel and sent them into captivity to Babylon to correct and enlighten them, and how he came to earth as a baby, how he lived and worked among the men, women, and children, healing their diseases, raising the dead, offering them the way of salvation how he was beaten, mocked, and savagely raised on a cross, how his blood saved us and de delivered us from sin. There are so many things to tell of his wonderful works for the children of men, but that's about where it ends. In God's church today, there is very little discussion about what Christ is actually doing now in the heavenly sanctuary. Many people do not believe that there is a heavenly sanctuary. Many people do not think that Christ is doing a special work for his people and in his people. Many do not want to bring their lives into harmony with God's will, so they ignore what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary. But there's one thing that Christ does that is perhaps the most important thing for the last generation. And it is perhaps the least talked about, and it is not very politically correct to talk about it most of the time. It's outside of popular theology. Most of God's people could not articulate its key issues or principles. But we should be talking about it. We should be explaining it and shouting it from the housetop, so to speak. It is so important that Satan wants to bury it under a heap of rubbish. The enemy wants to obscure it by so much confusion that we won't understand it. He is determined to prevent us from comprehending it. He's desperate. In fact, to prevent us from experiencing it, because nothing would overthrow his power more easily than this one principle, 
this one doctrine, and he's determined to do all he can in his power to prevent us from even thinking about it. The concept I'm going to share with you today is so hot, so devastating to the enemy, that we are told that he invents unnumbered schemes to occupy our minds, that they may not dwell upon the very work with which we ought to be best acquainted. That's from The Great Controversy, page 488. Listen to verse 13 of Psalm 77. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great as our God? This verse tells us that there's something so great about what Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary that Satan is determined to prevent people from even thinking about it. It's so potent that he is desperate to distract you from it by everything going on in your life, which the Bible calls the cares of this life, Luke 21:34. So what does the enemy do? He gets you so involved in taking your kids to play soccer or baseball and consuming time on Facebook, YouTube, and, and Twitter that you don't have time to think about this all-important issue. He fills up your time with superficial living and you neglect the study of the scriptures to grasp the most important thing you need for survival in these last days. So what is it that I'm referring to? I'm referring to the unique, full, and final ministry of Christ for you and me in the heavenly sanctuary before the close of human probation. If we're going to survive the coming crisis, we need to understand the issues and know how Christ plans to get us through them. That way, we will be able to cooperate with him in achieving it. All of us know that Christ died for our sins and that the slaying of the Lamb in the earthly sanctuary when a man sinned represented Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We all know that he is interceding for us before the Father in heaven and that Christ is our righteousness when we come to him in true repentance and ask forgiveness. He justifies and cleanses us from the stain of sin and he takes the guilt on himself. We are free and we can go home forgiven. One reason God gave the sanctuary principles of the earthly sanctuary to the Israelites thousands of years ago was so that we in the last generation will understand the fullness of what Christ will do for us in the heavenly sanctuary now. No one has had as much light as we do in all 6,000 years of earth's history. The light we have now shines from the cross and points to Christ's mediatorial work in the most holy place in heaven where God's throne is. Listen to these verses from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, we are to set aside every sin by looking unto Jesus. And by looking unto Jesus, we have power to do that. Where do we look? We look at where he is and what he is doing for us now. By doing this, we can grasp what Christ intends to achieve in this last generation. Most people living in the time of the final atonement think that as long as they're baptized, attend church, and pay their tithe, they will be in the kingdom of heaven. God overlooks their temper, 
their pride, their indulgence of appetite. They think they can eat their chicken and fish and other flesh. They think they can drink their coffee and tea and that God will mature them anyway and get them ready for heaven. They can tell a little white lie. God will overlook that. They can engage in a little soft porn, and God will overlook that. They think they can watch a Hollywood movie, and God will just overlook it. But friends, i got news for you. You're going to be shockingly surprised. That's not what God intends to do. Listen to what Paul says to the Hebrews about their earthly sanctuary. It's found in chapter 8. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. So here is the clearest evidence that there is a heavenly sanctuary to which Christ has gone to sit with the Most High, the majesty in the heavens. Wow! That's no earthly majesty. Rome can't match that majesty, even though they claim to be the vicegerent of Christ on earth. No earthly monarch can claim that Christ sits by his side in rulership. This is talking about the great throne room in heaven. And it is no small place either. It is huge, for there are tens of thousands of angels ministering before him. Listen to the description of God's throne room in the sanctuary in the heaven of heavens. It's from Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10. I beheld until thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Friends, this is an amazing place. Notice all the fire. This is a massive, huge place. Imagine how puny and overwhelmed you and I would feel in such a place, with the scrutiny of all heaven looking at our lives in judgment. Yet that place is just the place for us. It is just the place we need to imagine in our minds, and we need to be there by faith. Psalm 77 says we are to talk about the work that goes on there. We are to tell others what is happening in that place because it directly affects them. What is this judgment where the books are opened? It is a judgment that investigates whether those who have taken the name of Christ are truly Christians. Have they truly repented of their sins or not? You see, Satan accuses Christ, and he says that those people who call themselves Christians are not really Christians. So Christ has to sort it all out, publicly, so that everybody can see it. Most of us don't truly repent of our sins. We like doing them. So how can God remove our sins and plead his blood for us? How can Jesus apply his shed blood in our behalf? Most of us have no idea of the holiness and majesty and power of God. And if we were in his direct presence, we would be consumed. Most of us have no idea what it means to truly repent. We have a superficial way of saying sorry and asking forgiveness, but we do not have real sorrow for sin. 
We do not agonize over our unlikeness to Christ as we should. We do not feel the pain over our wicked hearts that wounds Christ afresh whenever we sin. So many of us have refused to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to bring conviction of sin and of true righteousness and of the judgment to come. Jesus said so in Matthew 16, verse 8. And when we sin, we are already judged. We get the eternal death penalty at once, and there's no hope if we don't repent. But what is true repentance? It's not what most people experience. They are sorry for the consequences of sin, something like Judas did. But they feel no real pangs of sorrow for the sin itself. True repentance arises from the love of Christ. You cannot truly repent unless you seek Christ's amazing love for the sinner and you respond in amazement and surrender. For it is the love of Christ that moves the heart to repent of sin. Some people even make an outward reformation, but they have no real sorrow of heart for what they have done to Christ and the pain that it causes him. But when the heart yields to the influence of the Spirit of God, the conscience will be quickened and the sinner will discern something of the depth and sacredness of God's holy law, the foundation of his government in heaven and on earth. The light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world illumines the secret chambers of the soul, and the hidden things of darkness are made manifest. John 1 verse 9. Conviction takes hold of the mind and heart. The sinner has a sense of the righteousness of Jehovah and feels the terror of appearing in his own guilt and uncleanliness before the searcher of hearts. He sees the love of God, the beauty of holiness, the joy of purity. He longs to be cleansed and to be restored to communion with heaven. That's from Steps to Christ, page 24. Isn't that a wonderful statement? And what a wonderful opportunity we have to live restored to sweet communion with heaven. Why should we turn our backs on that? Yet many do. They're afraid of what it will cost them to truly repent. They don't want to feel embarrassed. They don't want to feel sorrow for sin or agony over their unlikeness to Christ. They think that if they surrender all to Jesus, they're going to suffer persecution, ridicule, and abuse. And all of that needlessly or they're afraid to feel the terror of an offended God. Ministers emphasize the love of Christ and His forgiveness, but not the most necessary step of repentance to gain it. They do not explain the Bible's clear instructions on how to turn from sin to true righteousness and to true repentance, and put away the sin that has wounded our precious Savior again and again. Yet an understanding of the holiness, purity, and righteousness of Christ, which is also his law, is what we need. It will help us understand our desperate need of repentance. But friends, Jesus, our mediator, stands between us and certain death, the second death. He loves us deeply and longs to give us his purity that we may live righteously on this earth. Friends, it is Christ that gives us repentance. We cannot repent of ourselves. We can only repent when Christ breaks our hearts and shows us our inner wicked and filthy self and the justice of the righteous law that we long to be made right in his sight. Ask Jesus to give you true repentance for your sins, my friends. It can only come from Christ. Ask him to show you how wicked you are and how righteous God is. Listen to this from Steps to Christ, page 29. 
One ray of the glory of God, one gleam of the purity of Christ penetrating the soul, makes every spot of defilement painfully distinct and lays bare the deformity and defects of the human character. It makes apparent the unhallowed desires, the infidelity of the heart, the impurity of the lips. The sinner's acts of disloyalty and making void the law of God are exposed to his sight and his spirit is stricken and afflicted under the searching influence of the Spirit of God. He loathes himself as he views the pure, spotless character of Christ. Do you ever experience that? When we see God's love and his righteousness, we long to turn away from our sin. We see its ugliness, its filth, its trashy, low-living experience. You see your utter spiritual bankruptcy. You smell the hog pen that you've been in. You see the slop all over you. You suddenly realize you are starving spiritually. The shocking revelation of the depths to which you have sunk makes you say, like the prodigal son, I will return to my father. That's when true repentance sets in. When you see your wickedness compared to Christ's love, you can't bear to keep on sinning. You want to be clean. You want to have innocence and purity again. You long to be restored to righteousness. So you make changes and you plead with God to deliver you from temptation. You long to be enveloped with Christ in his approval and love. And you long to spurn sin. When someone tells you that you do not have to turn from sin to receive righteousness, and forgiveness, he is teaching cheap grace. If you hear someone tell you that you don't have to overcome the evil one, he is teaching a falsehood. You can only turn from sin through the power of Christ in your life, but you must turn from it by cooperating with Christ to gain the victory over it. Christ is at the center of it all. You get repentance from Christ, you get the turning from sin from Christ, and you get forgiveness from Christ. You get restoration from Christ. Friends, what is the definition of true repentance then? It is the response to the sense of Christ's righteousness in contrast to the wickedness of our own souls. When we have true repentance, we no longer want to sin. We no longer think that Christ will overlook the defects of our character, and we no longer justify ourselves. When you yield your soul to the workings of the Holy Spirit so that your old nature is broken up, then Christ will impute his righteousness to you if you truly yield yourself in true obedience to him. True repentance means that you resolve in your heart to turn from sin. You start to practice reproving the devil and turning from his temptations by the power of Christ, you will receive forgiveness of sins and full restoration to communion with God when you do that. What joy! What freedom! But then what? Is that all? Or is there more? My friends, there is more. So much more. We are living in the time in Earth's history when God has given full light to His people and consequently He requires of us more and full responsibility. This means that beyond true repentance, there is something else. Yet most of God's people have no idea that there is more than the intercession of Christ and His forgiveness of sin. They think that is all that is required of them. Yes, that is the way it was for many centuries. A man sinned and repented and was forgiven. He sinned and repented was forgiven over and over again. 
But in the last days, in the investigative judgment, in the Day of Atonement, Satan has made accusations that are still out there and not fully answered. Christ must answer the enemy's allegations before he can return and claim his people as his own. You see, salvation isn't just about us. It's also about Christ. His character must be vindicated before the universe. When I asked my students to explain the difference between what Jesus was doing before 1844 and what he is doing after 1844, their response is usually blank stares. They have no clue. And these are the very special spiritual students in my class. These are the ones that already love the Lord and are committed to doing work for the Master. They are the ones God will use to finish His work on earth, among others. They are destined for the front lines in the battle with the enemy, and they're clueless about what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary for the last generation. Finally, someone says, He's interceding for us. Well, yes, that's true. He still intercedes for those who fall into sin. But Christ was doing that before 1844. He continues that in the most holy place for those who sincerely repent of their sins. But my question was, what is the difference? Well, then someone says, he's judging us. And I ask them, well, what does that mean? More blank stares. Then someone says, it is the investigative judgment. And I ask them, what does that mean? More blank stares. The conversation goes right over their heads. Unfortunately, most of our young people are not being taught the most important truth for our times. Their parents weren't taught it. So how can they be expected to teach their children? But more than that, most church members do not get an understanding of it from their pastors, evangelists, or others. Have you given this question much thought, my friends? What's the difference between what Christ did before 1844 and what he's doing now? If not, I suggest that you get out your Bibles and start studying the high priestly ministry of Christ. So please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Listen carefully to what it says. It's referring to Christ. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. What aspect of the sanctuary is this talking about? Friends, this is talking about the work of the high priest. When in the earthly sanctuary did the high priest have a special work to do? It was on the Day of Atonement. The high priest on the Day of Atonement went into the Most Holy Place to offer sacrifice for the accumulated sins of the people over the course of the year. They were then placed on the scapegoat, and it was sent out into the wilderness to die. Likewise, Satan will have the forgiven sins of God's people placed on him, and he will perish in the lake of fire, the scripture says in Revelation 20, verse 10. John the Revelator saw the end of Satan and the end of sin in vision. Here it is. And the devil that deceived them was cast in the lake of fire. Bible time prophecies revealed that Jesus was going to change his work in the heavenly sanctuary in October of 1844. He was going to the Ancient of Days to conduct one of several judgments. Let's read it again in Daniel 7, 9 and 10. I beheld till thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit. 
The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Think of that scene, my friends. Daniel the prophet saw in vision the realities of the heavenly sanctuary. It's huge, and there were 10,000 times 10,000 ministering before him. That's a 100 million beings, most of which are probably angels that excel in strength. Imagine the magnificent scene in that massive sanctuary in heaven. There is the glorious throne. On it sits our Heavenly Father, who loves repentant sinners more than they'll ever know on this earth, but hates the sin because it was instigated by his archenemy, Satan. And who sends his angels and Holy Spirit to help separate us from sin, so that he can bring us to our heavenly home? There's Christ, who stands between the repentant sinner, and he pleads his blood as the payment for the sinner's penalty. This is the judgment that's going on right now in the heavenly sanctuary, according to the prophecy of Daniel 8.14. The angel says, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. The cleansing of the sanctuary parallels the time of the earthly sanctuary when the high priest put the accumulated sins of the people on the scapegoat. That's the typical day of atonement in the earthly sanctuary. I'd love to show you when the anti-typical day of atonement began from scripture and history, but I will only be able to explain that based on time prophecies in scripture, the anti-typical day of atonement began in 1844. What's more important is what Jesus is doing in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and how that affects our lives personally and practically. When you study the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary, you begin to understand the amazing work that Christ is doing for you personally. The work he did in the holy place was important to have a way for sincere people to have forgiveness and salvation during an era of great spiritual darkness. They did not have much light. Satan was using the superstitions of the Roman Catholic Church to deceive the people into thinking that they were saved by works. During most of those years, the Waldenses spread the light of the true gospel, but it was only in limited ways because they were persecuted and hunted like animals, but also because the masses of people were uneducated and kept in darkness for the benefit of the church and their rulers. But why did God permit such a time of darkness? Why didn't he just bypass all the misery and trouble this caused? It's because he had to permit Satan an opportunity to show his hostility to Christ's church, just as he showed his enmity to Christ. God also had to show that he would have people who would be true to his law, even the Sabbath, right down through the long, dark night of persecution and conflict with Rome. The holy place ministry of Christ, which would forgive the repentant sinner over and over again, was vital for their salvation. But then, on the antitypical Day of Atonement, Christ entered the most holy place, to sit down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the universe. And so now we come back to our original question. What is Jesus doing in the most holy place that he was not doing in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. What changed? Well, friends, let's think about it. How would God deal with the record of forgiven sin that had been placed on the record books of the sanctuary? That's what the judgment was all about. He needs to compare the lives of his people with what is on record. 
Have they adopted the law of God in their lives, and have they accepted Christ's power to overcome Satan's temptations? How would God take people beyond repentance and forgiveness to mature them into full representatives of Christ in every aspect of their lives and settle them into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually? How would they be able to answer Satan's accusation that the law cannot be kept, that they cannot stop sinning? Revelation 3 verse 5 says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You see, when you become a follower of Christ, your name is placed in the book of life. Then, as you continue to live, you may well fall into sin or into old habits, for instance. You haven't learned how to live in Christ yet, and you haven't learned how Christ overcomes your sins in your life yet. But you know you have an advocate with the Father, so if you slip and fall, Jesus Christ forgives you and cleanses you from sin. He takes it upon himself and in tender pity forgives you of your iniquity and then restores you. But he has done that for almost 2,000 years now. Before he comes, he must cleanse the sanctuary record of sin. Now, isn't that wonderful? God does not want to remember your sins, so he has a plan to even remove the record of them. Christ must cleanse the sanctuary as it says in Daniel 8.14. He'll never bring them up to you again. That cleansing removes the sins of record, and if we continue to sin, we're continually adding more sins of record onto the sanctuary books. How can Christ cleanse the sanctuary if his people continue to sin and bring more sins there? Christ actually proposes to give his people so much light and so much power that they will obey his law from the heart, become so loyal that they will recoil from sin, that it will become hateful to them. Listen to this statement from Desire of Ages, page 668. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ, and if we consent... He will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Did you hear that? Do you want that? Christ will mold you after his own identity that your thoughts will be like his. Your actions will be like his. You will model so closely with Christ that there will not be much difference between you at all. Let me read on. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. And when we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. If you know Christ, as it is your privilege to know Him, you will obey Him because your relationship will be so full of joy, so full of love that nothing else matters. So the one who turns from his sins and lives in harmony with the character of Christ is preserved in the book of life. He so identifies with Christ, and Christ so identifies with Him that they think alike. And when you have no more variance or disagreement with Christ, he can then remove the sins of record because you won't do them anymore. He can forget them. And as the scripture says, he will cast them into the depths of the sea. Micah 7.19 
Your sins will finally be blotted out of the book of record in the heavenly sanctuary once you stop committing them. What an amazing transaction. Christ gives you his power to live a holy life in harmony with God's law. The world will become hateful to you and the world will hate you in return. You will love Christ so much that you cannot bear to offend him again. Christ puts his Holy Spirit on you and you are empowered to overcome every temptation of the enemy. You see, Satan has always claimed that it is impossible to keep God's law and that God is unfair to require it. But God has always disproven him. There was Enoch, Methuselah, Noah, Elijah, Daniel, etc., all of whom were sinners, but who learned to keep God's law and love him with all their hearts. Satan also argued that not even Christ could keep God's law. But Christ overcame all the temptations that the devil threw at him all of his life until he was murdered on the cross. He overcame by the power of his Father living in him. He was the only sinless man that ever lived, and he did it by the power of God in our flesh. What a defeat Satan suffered with that one. But he keeps at it, and now he says, Okay, one or two perhaps can keep God's law, but not a whole group of people. That's impossible. Jesus says, Oh, yes, I can. I can give a whole group of people the power to live by my law and overcome all your temptations, and they will keep my law constantly, even though you throw the worst temptations at them, and even though you put them under severe pressure, they will not yield to your evil temptations. It will be my power, but it will be operative in their flesh. This is the argument. But there is another issue. God's law is the foundation of his whole government, and it pervades the universe and brings peace and happiness to every corner of it, except earth, of course. He gives all his intelligent creatures freedom of choice. He has to make sure that sin will never arise again, while making sure that every survivor that is given eternal life will still have free choice. The eternally saved person can still turn his back on God if he chooses. But he will never do it because he has learned the value of Christ's amazing love and the power of living by his law, which is really an expression of Christ's character. He loves Christ and God so much and is so thankful for the absolute peace and tranquility of his soul that he would never forsake it for anything. But that has to be learned on earth before Jesus comes. It can't answer Satan's argument if man does not have to learn to be loyal to Christ and his law on this earth. To give man license to live as he pleases on earth without having to do away with his sins will just give Satan opportunity to make more accusations. The world is hostile to Christ, but even more the church today is actually hostile to the principles of the most holy place living to which God calls us and makes even many in church hostile to Christ. A life empowered by Christ to live without sin is just as much a problem today as it was when Christ walked on the earth. And teaching this principle is very politically incorrect in many circles. No one teaches it hardly. In fact, most pastors, teachers, and others teach the exact opposite. They join Satan in his lies that man cannot live in harmony with God's law. That man cannot live without sin. But that is precisely what the Most Holy Place Ministry of Christ is designed to do, 
to put Christ's life in you so that you and I live according to God's law all the time. One of the devious deceptions and temptations of Satan is to get church members to think that they're saved when they're not overcoming in Christ's power. When Jesus says, To him that overcometh I will give, he is also implying clearly, To him that does not overcome I will not give. Over and over again in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, To him that overcometh. And then he makes very attractive promises of what he will give or do for the overcomer. Do you think Christ means what he says? What does the word overcoming mean? It means what it says. Overcoming is referring to overcoming the devil, the enemy, and Satan, and all of his temptations. Unfortunately, he will be forced to say to many, I never knew you. Depart from ye, ye workers of iniquity. That's Luke thirteen twenty-seven. Malachi 3, verses 2 and 3 says, Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. So what is the day of his coming? Listen to this interesting statement taken from the Review and Herald, May 9, 1893. After quoting these verses, the author says the coming of Christ, which is here referred to, is not his second advent to this earth, but his coming to the investigative judgment in the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. Thus the message is especially to us who are living in the time of the judgment. This is Jesus coming to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7.9 to begin the Day of Atonement, the investigative judgment ministry. This is the beginning of the review of the books of record in heaven to see who has had Christ in their hearts and who is worthy, therefore, of heaven. Now let us read this very interesting statement from Great Controversy, page 425. After quoting the verse we just read, the author says, While the investigative judgment is going forward in heaven, while the sins of penitent believers are being removed from the sanctuary, there is to be a special work of purification, of putting away of sin among God's people upon earth. In other words, the only way to abide the day of His coming, which is the coming of the judgment to your own life, is to remove sin and to live for Jesus. Let the gospel of Christ purify and mature you, the work that Jesus is doing now in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary is to purify a people, separate them from sin, and give them overcoming victory over every wrong thought and action. Why? Here's a very important passage from Great Controversy that puts this into context. Those who are living upon the earth, when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above, are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Their robes must be spotless, their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of the sprinkling, and through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. That's page 425 also. So, let us think about this for a minute. What is it that Christ is doing in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary? He's interceding for us, but it is more than that. He's our advocate who forgives our sins and offers his blood instead of ours. But it is more than that. 
He is our substitute that takes our guilt upon himself. But it is more than that. He is doing something he has never done before. He is doing something that takes his people beyond where they have ever been before. And he is offering them power from on high to achieve something that has never been achieved before. Christ is preparing a people, a group of people, to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. That's 144,000 people. What does that mean? Why do we need a mediator? It's because we sin. The mediator, Jesus Christ, mediates for the repentant sinner and places his own blood in place of our own as the penalty for our sin. So what does Christ have to do in order to organize a group of people to live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator? That means he has to have a people that actually stop sinning by his power and grace in their lives. Christ actually has to cultivate in us the power of his spirit to overcome every sin and overthrow every temptation so that we are living representatives of his character in a world gone mad. Living without a mediator means that they have nothing in them that is in conflict with Christ's character. That means that they have no anger management issues. That means they have no deceit in them. They have no greed. They have no lust, no hatred, no envy, no jealousy against anyone else. They love others more than they love themselves. And in the midst of chaos, persecution, and trial, Christ will have a people that will represent him 24-7, 365. To live in the sight of a holy God without a mediator does not mean that we must do this alone. It does not mean that Christ has abandoned us. Christ stands by the side of his victorious ones. He sends his Holy Spirit to them in greater measure to overcome the enemy and seal them for eternity. Christ gives them power, overcoming power, and they cooperate with him even in the severest temptations that Satan can muster. They are so united to Christ, so close to him, that Christ can use them to demonstrate that there is a people that can be completely loyal to God's law and Christ's character, which are the same thing. Christ will stand by their side. He will give them all that they need to overcome the enemy, and they will do it because Christ lives in them. What a wonderful experience that is, my friends. I want to let go of sin. I don't want to be caught by the enemy. I want to overcome him. I want to live in Christ through the most difficult time in history. I need Christ's righteousness in my life every day so that I will not fall into temptation. But it's only Christ's power that can make that happen. I must cooperate with him and do what he has placed in my power to do. But it is Christ that does the overcoming. My power is weak. My resolve is weak. But Christ's power and resolve are strong. My promises are like ropes of sand, but Christ's promises are strong. Christ's promises hold firmly, so I can rely on them. I don't have to be tossed around by the enemy. As long as I hold on to Christ and learn everything I can from Scripture about His will, I will grow in Christ and become like Him in character. Listen to this interesting description of what happens when Christ finishes His most holy place ministry in heaven, when He no longer mediates. Look what happens to them. But more importantly, look what happens to the righteous who have been overcomers in Jesus' name and power. They have defeated Satan at every turn. This is from Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 199 to 
2.01. Then I saw Jesus lay off his priestly attire and clothe himself with his most kingly robes. Upon his head were many crowns, a crown within a crown, and surrounded by the angelic host, he left heaven. The plagues were falling upon the inhabitants of the earth. Some were denouncing God and cursing him. Others rushed to the people of God and begged to be taught how they should escape the judgments of God. But the saints had nothing for them. The last tear for sinners had been shed. The last agonizing prayer offered. The last burden had been borne. The sweet voice of mercy was no more to invite them. The last note of warning had been given. When the saints and all heaven were interested for their salvation, they had no interest for themselves. Life and death had been set before them. Many desired life, but did not make any effort to obtain it. They did not choose life, and now there was no atoning blood to cleanse the sinner, no compassionate Savior to plead for them, and cry, Spare, spare the sinner a little longer. All heaven had united with Jesus as they heard the fearful words, It is done. It is finished. The plan of salvation had been accomplished, but few had chosen to accept the plan. And as mercy's sweet voice died away, a fearfulness and horror seized them. With terrible distinctness they hear, Too late! Too late! Those who had not prized God's word were hurrying to and fro. They wandered from sea to sea and from the north to the east to seek the word of the Lord. Said the angel, they shall not find it. There is a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. What would they not give for one word of approval from God? But no, they must hunger and thirst on. Day after day they have slighted salvation and prized earthly treasure and earthly riches higher than any heavenly inducement and treasure. They have rejected Jesus and despised his saints. The filthy must remain filthy forever. A great portion of the wicked were greatly enraged as they suffered the effects of the plagues. It was a scene of fearful agony. Parents were bitterly reproaching their children, and children reproaching their parents, brothers their sisters, and sisters their brothers. Loud wailing cries were heard in every direction. It was you who kept me from receiving the truth, which would have saved me from this awful hour. The people turned on their ministers with bitter hate and reproached them, telling them, You have not warned us. You told us... All the world was to be converted and cried, Peace, peace, to quiet every fear that was aroused. You have not told us of this hour, and those who warned us of it you said were fanatics and evil men who would ruin us. But the ministers I saw did not escape the wrath of God. Their sufferings were tenfold greater than their people's. Oh, friends, I need Jesus, don't you? I need to experience his love and power in my life to mold my character after his own, so that I don't suffer like those people who have rejected Christ. I need the Holy Spirit to teach me the way of righteousness during this solemn day of atonement. Friends, I pray that you will also yield your life to Jesus, for we are nearing the very end. Your life can be free of sin. Your soul can walk in purity of heart before God. You can live a life of righteousness just as Enoch did. And may God bless you, my friends, as you seek to do this with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Let us pray. 
Our Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for the Bible that gives us so much information about your work in the Holy of Holies. Please, Father, we need your Spirit to control our lives and give us victory over every sin. We cannot depend on ourselves. We need to learn to live fully dependent on Christ so that he can overcome in our lives that we may live in the sight of a holy God without sin. Oh, Father, we earnestly pray for Satan to be defeated in our lives so that Jesus can finish his work in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary and return to take us out of this wicked world and put an end to sin. Thank you for hearing and answering our humble prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.
We hope you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. The song you have just heard is called Live Out Thy Life Within Me, played by Henry Higgins. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Day by Day. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry. If you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Day by Day CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing a feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, Pope Francis to meet with the world's most influential people. Time Fortune's Global Forum announced that Pope Francis will give an address to their inaugural gathering of the world's top 500 CEOs and Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in an unprecedented meeting in Rome, December 2 and 3, 2016. Time Magazine nominated Pope Francis as the Person of the Year in 2013, the year of his election. This may be the way the Vatican returns the favor. The meeting will be held in Rome because Pope Francis plays a central role in the efforts for social justice by speaking out on issues as global economics, the growing wealth gap, and his statement that the distribution of the fruits of the earth and human labor is a moral obligation. Time Inc. is honored to present this unique gathering of global influencers. The meeting motto is the 21st Century Challenge, Forging a New Social Compact. Time hopes that this rare event in partnership with the Vatican will impact the way the world thinks about these global issues. Many of these companies and foundations and influential thinkers have a history of promoting or practicing the very things that Pope Francis and the Church oppose. But Pope Francis is more open, so these people are more willing to dialogue with him. The Vatican has become the happening place for high-flying events such as this, In 2014, the Porsche Company rented out the Sistine Chapel for a $10,000-a-plate dinner and concert fundraiser. And in May of 2016, The Edge, guitar player for the Irish rock band U2, staged the first-ever rock concert in the Sistine Chapel to help fight cancer. The Global Forum gives Pope Francis the opportunity to get up close and personal with very wealthy merchants of the earth and highly influential people. For Pope Francis to make friends with these people and put his head together with them would lay a foundation for collaboration when it comes time for global and national worship laws and their economic penalties for disobedience. He would certainly need their cooperation. Becoming friends with the most influential and wealthy people in the world, a world that would not normally have much good to say about the church, is a way to break down resistance to Rome's claims and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Revelation 13, verse 17. Next, Religious Liberty in the Crosshairs. The U.S. Civil Rights Commission issued a report recently that says, religious exemptions to the protections of civil rights based upon classifications such as race, color, national, origin, sex, disability status, 
sexual orientation and gender identity, when they are permissible, significantly infringe upon these civil rights. In a separate statement, the chairman of the commission, Martin R. Castro, said, the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy, so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any other form of intolerance. Roger Severino, director of the Devos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, said that a particularly troubling aspect of the report is what he called the attempt to discredit sincere religious believers as being motivated by hate instead of faith, and the implied recommendation that religious groups should change their beliefs on sexual morality to conform with liberal norms for the good of the country. Then he added, I would expect to see such a slanted and anti-religious report come out of China or France, perhaps, but am disappointed to see it come from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. The Commission's findings place the boundary of religious freedom where it conflicts with civil rights. In other words, religion has been demoted from preeminent to subservient in U.S. policy. The Commission also said religious exemptions from non-discrimination laws and policies must be weighed carefully and defined narrowly on a fact-specific basis. Third parties, such as employees, should not be forced to live under the religious doctrines of their employers. A basic right, as important as the freedom to marry, should not be subject to religious beliefs. One of the Commission's own members, Commissioner Peter Kursanoff, called the findings and recommendations an alarm to liberty-loving Americans. According to him, the conflict between religious liberty and non-discrimination principles is profound. Kursanov said the tension appears most acute when religious liberty and sexual liberty conflict. He argues that the Commission elevates non-discrimination laws, which are mere statutes, not constitutional provisions, over the provisions of the Constitution. In practice, he said, this is hostile to religion. But Castro said, in the past, religion was cited to justify Jim Crow laws and oppose women's suffrage. Present-day religious liberty efforts are aimed at discriminating against the LGBTQ community. He added, and now it's used to deny the use of public school bathroom facilities by transgender youth. Some supporters of religious freedom or religious liberty oppose American Muslims building mosques in their communities. True religious liberty and religious freedom should be about allowing Americans to freely practice their faith. And it is not and should never be about preventing others from living their lives freely and equally. The United States shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 451. Next, Sunday needs to be special. Sunday is special to me because it's a day when we are not forced to worship the market, wrote Giles Fraser, a London priest, a regular columnist for The Guardian. The Tories may dismiss the Keep Sunday Special campaign as a collection of eccentric backwoodsmen, Christians, trade unions, and 1950s nostalgics, but their ideas are directly connected to prophecy. Anna Salbury on the Today Show thinks that until Sunday shopping came along, Sunday was the most miserable day of the week. But Giles sarcastically remarks, 
Nothing, absolutely nothing, must get in the way of shopping and our ever-increasing productivity. Instead of all those tedious family gatherings, we should be out there buying more things we don't need with money we don't have. And a day of rest? God, no. We must be turning those wheels of finance, building those pyramids, getting into more debt. Sobri, he says, wants us to worship the god of finance on Sunday. All other gods must be smashed, smeared, ridiculed. Only the god of money deserves our true and unquestioning obedience. Well, I do wish she'd stop ramming her religion down our throats. Giles acknowledges the Bible day of rest and worship is Saturday and gets at least some of his history right. He says early Christians moved their day of rest from the seventh day of the week to the first day, from Saturday to Sunday, despite the fourth commandment mandating Saturday, the seventh-day Sabbath observance. This move partly was a way of honoring the resurrection, which happened on the first day of the week, partly about distinguishing Christianity from Judaism, and partly a way of colonizing the posh Roman Sunday-worshipping day. Giles also acknowledges that the Seventh-day Sabbath is fundamentally connected to the Jubilee, which involves debt forgiveness. For the seventh day of the week, he said, corresponded to the seventh day of creation, when God rested. And from this derives, one, rest on the seventh day. Two, rest for the land on the seventh year, which on the Jewish calendar is this year. And three, the forgiveness of all debts, the Jubilee, on the seventh times seventh year. Giles argues that Jesus refers to debt forgiveness when he says, I come to bring good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is not some niche bit of scripture. It's the key that unlocks the whole meaning of Jesus' movement, and it is fundamentally and unavoidably antithetical to the modern capitalism. The Jubilee is not debt restructuring. It's out-and-out, full-on debt forgiveness. No wonder the business minister isn't so keen. But there have been times when the radical spirit of the pre-Constantinian church has bubbled up, he added, and it's no coincidence that as the English Civil War was raging and radical theology was being reclaimed, some Christians began to call for Seventh-day Sabbatarianism and a return to the political theology of the Jubilee. In typical Biting British sarcasm, Giles the priest mocks Sunday shopping and advocates Sunday rest for Brits. One day he may get his wish, for the time will come when there will be a popular demand for Sunday rest in the UK. It's one of the Satan's devices to combine with falsehood just enough truth to give it plausibility. The leaders of the Sunday movement may advocate reforms which the people need, principles which are in harmony with the Bible. Yet while there is with these a requirement which is contrary to God's law, his servants cannot unite with them, nothing can justify them in setting aside the commandments of God for the precepts of men. The Great Controversy, page 587 and 588. Next, Sunday traditions need to be restored. Arguing that we have created a negative rat race with limited ability or potential for good interactions with one another, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette ran an opinion article on Christmas Day 2015 suggesting that it's time to protect Sunday as a day of rest from shopping, business, the internet, etc. It even advocated paying people to rest on Sunday. There's no argument or question that our country was founded on Christian values that have eroded over the years. 
Whereas in the not-too-distant past, non-essential businesses were required to be closed on Sundays, now we have Sunday shopping, the article continued. Our Congress should revisit, and our candidates for president should consider advocating the restoration of Sunday as a day of rest, a paid day of rest, a required day of rest. Americans deserve a day of rest, a day to be with families, attend church, and inter interact with people on an interpersonal level. Imagine shutting down the internet or cell phones for a day. How peaceful that would be, he said. We need to restore one takeaway from our past. Sunday is a day of rest, a day of worship, of prayer that was invaluable to our family values and individual well-being. In the movements now in progress in the United States to secure for the institutions and usages of the church the support of the state, Protestants are following in the steps of papists. Nay more, they are opening the door for the papacy to regain in Protestant America the supremacy which she has lost in the old world. And that which gives greater significance to this movement is the fact that this principal object contemplated is the enforcement of Sunday observance, a custom which originated with Rome and which she claims as the sign of her authority. It is the spirit of the papacy, the spirit of conformity to worldly customs, the veneration for human traditions above the commandments of God that is permeating the Protestant churches and leading them on to do the same work of Sunday exaltation which the papacy has done before them. Great Controversy, page 573. Next, Sweden leads the race to become cashless. I don't use cash anymore for anything, said Louis Hendrickson, 26, a teaching assistant in Sweden. You just don't need it. Shops don't want it. Lots of banks don't even have it. Even for a candy bar or a paper, you use a card or phone. Cash transactions now make up only 2% of the value of all payments in 2015. In retail shops, cash is now barely used for 20% of all payments, half the number five years ago. Retailers and services are increasingly eliminating cash so much that Swedes are used to cashless payments. For instance, Swedish buses have not taken cash for years. To buy a ticket on Stockholm Metro with cash is impossible, and retailers are legally entitled to refuse coins and notes. Street vendors and even churches increasingly offer card or phone payments. Globally, cash is used for 75% of all transactions on average. Sweden has become the leader in cashless payments, and 900 of Sweden's 1,600 banks no longer accept cash deposits or keep cash on hand. And many, especially in rural areas, no longer have ATMs. And over the last year, circulation of Swedish kroner has fallen to 80 billion from 106 billion. I think in practice, Sweden will pretty much be a cashless society within about five years, said Nicholas Arvidsson, associate professor of Stockholm's Royal Institute of Technology. Cards are now the main form of payment, with Swedes using cards three times more than other Europeans. But mobile apps have also taken off as technology has become more ubiquitous. Swish, a hugely popular app with over 9 million payments a month, allows customers to transfer money between banks in real time. Swish has pretty much killed cash for most people as far as person-to-person -person payments are concerned, said Arvidsson. It has the same features as a cash payment, real-time clearing. 
Mobile apps with mini card readers attached to their phones are now used by even street vendors and homeless magazine sellers. Even churches have adopted cashless payments, with one church reporting that 85% of their donations were by phone. Sweden's Nordic neighbors, Norway, Denmark, and Finland, are also fast becoming almost entirely cashless societies. Cash is not dead yet. To go 100% cashless would require a political decision. And the idea of cash, a cash option, remains strong. The end-time prophecy of a no-buy, no-sale law for violating religious worship laws would work best under a cashless society. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Revelation 13, verse 17. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.